Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today we're going to be talking to a couple of uh, writer-directors about their film Nina Forever. Can you introduce yourself, guys? Uh, yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Chris Blaine. And I'm Ben Blaine. Okay, okay. And your film Nina Forever. Do you want to get, does one of you want to give us a brief synopsis of what that film's about so people can get their head around it? Yeah, sure. So the film's about uh, Holly, who's this trainee paramedic who uh, falls in love with a guy called Rob, who she's attracted to him because he's got this sort of dark aura around him. And she's uh, found out that uh, his girlfriend died in a car accident um, about 18 months before. And uh, she's got this real urge to try and help him and save him and, you know, bring him back to uh, the person that he could be because he's, he's feeling very suicidal when she meets him. And um, they start going out together and the first time that they make love, uh, Nina comes out of the bed bloody and fucked up like she was in the car accident she died in. And basically she becomes another part of their relationship. Um, so... She is uh, still as caustic and witty as she was when she was alive. She's kind of a ghost. She's kind of... Um, she's not really a ghost, actually, is the, the proper way of putting it, because she doesn't just uh, magically disappear with uh, leaving no trace. She leaves all of the blood that she keeps leaking out everywhere. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a film about relationships and about trying to, uh, trying to move on and trying to help each other. And, and, and while we're at the beginning here, do you want to, do you want to tell people the we're, we're at an imminent release date? So do you want to give people the uh, how they can see the movie? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's um, it comes out uh, it comes out in the US actually for Valentine's weekend, um, kind of uh, across the whole of um, the United States, and then here in the UK we've got um, a small but select group of screenings. Uh, we're in the um, uh, Art House Cinema in Crouch End on the 12th, Friday the 12th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we are Hackney Picture House on the 15th. Um, and Old Truck Theatre on the fifth, on the 16th. 16th. Uh, Brixton Ritchie on the 19th. Um, Bristol on the 21st. Edinburgh on the 22nd. And uh, potentially Norwich on the 24th. Yeah, the great thing is uh, most of those screenings are organised via um, our screen. So if you want to see Nina Forever and you don't live in London or Hull or uh, Norris or anywhere else like that, then, uh, yeah, you can just go on our screen and demand your own screening and sort that out. But obviously you will have to bring an audience of around 30 people, otherwise it won't happen. So if it is just you and your friend, then perhaps think about, you know, travelling to Bristol and seeing it there. Yeah, but, and that's um, powerscreen.com. Yeah. And so, yeah, so cinema screenings from the 12th, but then um, it comes out on VOD over here in the UK on the 15th. So iTunes and Amazon and I don't know where else, but um, I'm sure... The internet generally. Yeah. Yeah, and then it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray the following week on the 22nd. Yeah, um, and you can buy that from Amazon. From Amazon, HMV, FOP, yeah. and uh, yeah, all sorts. There's no reason that you can't watch it, basically. By March, if you've not seen it, you're just not trying. The film, the film pl- premiered, was, that, was it world premiere at Fright Fest? No, the film, the film had its world premiere at uh, South by Southwest. Of course it did. In, uh, America. 
And uh, yeah, from that started really picking up. We got a sales agent out there who became a US distributor as well. And uh, yeah, with Fright Fest was the festival that everybody was telling us that we should be a part of. And okay. uh, really glad that we were. Brilliant, brilliant. And I feel like I've got full house now because I think I've got, speaking to you now, I'm, I've collected all the uh, British filmmakers that are this year's, <laughs> this year's uh, Fright Fest. So let's, now, that, you, you kind of, you talked around what, what Nina was and what she is and what she might be. Um, and when you watch it, people will make up their own minds. Yeah. So what was, what was driving this? Where did this idea get born? Um, it kind of um, initially came out of uh, seeing someone else's grief and so I started writing a kind of a fairly straight drama about uh, about this guy whose girlfriend's died and he's still in touch with her parents and about the kind of relationship between those characters and sort of the space that there is in their life because there's this sort of person that's missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, it was quite dull, um, and so it sort of went back in the bottom drawer. And um, then we started to actually experience grief for ourselves, and um, that's kind of when Nina started talking. Yeah, and became it suddenly became like she started. She literally started talking, and she kind of has this uh, very compelling way of speaking. I found, mm-hmm. um, and so we were sort of drawn to that. And she becomes she's she's such a kind of visceral character, and suddenly sort of. We used to go, oh, hang on, been writing this thing where there's like this space in the middle and trying to be very kind of serious and, and sort of po-faced about it. And what if instead of having a dead girl who wasn't there, what if actually the dead girl was there and she was covered in blood and naked and just this sort of thing that you can't, you literally can't get over, you can't avoid her. She is this totally inconvenient, totally wonderful mess. Hmm. Um, and that just seemed... I don't know, vivid and visceral and much more like the kind of messy, agonizing, beautiful, magical experience of losing someone. Um, yeah, they don't often, like a lot of the time when you see films, stories that are about, um, about having some, you know, about grieving about somebody who's died. Generally, the way those stories work is that the person who's grieving is a bit sad for a bit. And um, that's just really not how the experience is at all. You know, there's kind of like there's so many emotions washing over you all at the same time. And one of the big ones is um, just how much you crave closeness with somebody because you've lost this, you know, somebody who's had like this real huge impact in your life and you miss the physicality of it. And so it being a film that becomes so much about the physicality and about being drawn to somebody new and just needing somebody new in your life and, and having that contact. And so that's why so much of it happens. Like we said in the start, like she, you know, she's not a ghost. And I think that's again, sort of ties right in. Like ghosts always seem to be, um, that the side of someone that you miss that you, that you feel you can talk about, you know, it's like ghosts sort of come along and you do pottery together or you play the cello still. And you kind of, it's all the things that at a funeral ceremony, you'd sort of stand up and say, oh, I really miss their sense of humor. Mm. And, we kind of wanted to do something kind of talking about all the stuff that, you know, like you, you couldn't stand up in a funeral ceremony and say, I really miss fucking this person. It was so beautiful. It was this amazing <laughs> thing that we had. Like it would be, but like, that's a, that's a real, that's a, you know, it's a really important part of, you know, most people's relationships, you know? So it kind of felt, yeah, interesting to look at that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also just that thing of how much of it is about, relationships and trying to move on and the stuff that you're bringing with it as well mm. you know the way that um you know we pretty much everyone had a relationship at some point with someone and however that has gone is definitely going to have an effect upon your next relationship and you know that gets just completely magnified when you know the person who you previously were with is now dead because that memory of them becomes so much more powerful and it becomes really hard to compete with the dead girl. It's, um, you, it's interesting you, you say who the film's about because in some senses it, 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 your story dances around all three of the main characters because there's no real... I don't, know that you, I don't know that you could clearly point somebody out as the antagonist. Like I'm, guess, you know, I'm guessing you would if you were academically speaking, you would point at Nina. But Nina is obviously a product of of the grief, so to make her an antagonist seems sort of cruel. And um, as 
as it was at Fragfest, that would make people listening maybe think this is a horror film. And like you said, this was born out of a drama in the first place. Yeah. And she's not what you call a ghost. She's she's very physical. And in in, in some senses, your your, your horror's not about the, the horror in it. If if for want of a, for want of a better word than I can come up with, a second is is more in the kind of icky ooh, that's horrible. Not in the I'm terrified. What the hell's going on? Kind of way because what you what what I found really enjoyable about your movie was the sense that you you played it quite straight. You didn't you didn't jump. Despite the fact that it's a massively, if you wrote it down on paper, a ridiculous concept, once you played it played it in the film, you played it straight. You kind of stuck by, and we'll talk about how you come up with the rules, but you kind of stuck by what you'd set out to do. You didn't jump. I never felt like you jumped the shark. It always felt like it was drama, and Nina, the apparition, the ghost, whatever she is, is part of that drama, not something that just makes us jump or something, you know? Yeah, yeah totally, yeah. We weren't. We were never sort of setting out to scare people. We weren't even particularly setting out to kind of horrify people. Hmm. I think sort of most of all, we sort of wanted uh, to kind of explore that embarrassment of the mess that you feel, and kind of having Nina kind of viscerally and physically represent that kind of that mess felt really good and really, really compelling. And again, there's you know like. You know, as Chris was saying, every time she goes away, she, you, you know, Rob is still left with all of this blood everywhere, and like the film's full of him having to clean up after her. And there's that real kind of, you know, I don't know, you know, like mess, mess in the bed. It's, you know, it is almost like he's wet himself. You know, there's that that, that humiliation of kind of like, oh God, this this keeps happening to me. And you know, it's like his response to Holly is, you know, it's kind of like you know, the first time it happens is. You know, it's not this sort of horrified. It's just this really kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm not over her. It's a mess. I'm so sorry. It's embarrassing. It's just, I'm pathetic. I feel so kind of, and that's that like, you have that when you're, when you're grieving. It's kind of like, you kind of, you kind of want it to stop. You kind of go, oh, I, I, I don't want to feel this way. And I wish I didn't, but I, I do. And oh God, I'm crying again. There's, there's mess everywhere. And so it's like the, the horror is kind of, in a way, kind of comes out of just going, yeah, that's what it's, that's what it's like, you know. It's like that's, you know, it's that sort of horror of of embarrassment, which I think is also where the comedy comes from as well. Yeah, it's interesting talking about antagonists or protagonists, and you're kind of um, in the development process of it, of it turning into the film that it did, was the realization that in terms of a protagonist more than an antagonist, though the person who has the most interesting character arc is Holly because mm. she's got the choices to make, you know, like Rob is, you know, in this process and he's, you know, you, you kind of, we've seen that story a few times of, you know, the guy who needs to get over a thing and eventually he sort of does. And, um, Nina is stuck, you know, she's not choosing to come back and uh, it's happening because of, you know, those guys. And, uh, with Holly, she runs away at first and then she's choosing to come back. And um, it was that choice and that, you know, why would you get drawn to that and why would you choose to keep doing that that was really interesting to us. And actually, the more that we thought about it, the more that you're kind of like, oh, I've had people do that with me in relationships and I've done that in relationships as well where you feel like you're almost, a, you know, someone's saviour. And that feeling is uh, it's a really lovely feeling to be feeling like you're helping someone. And, you know, that's not something that you see that often in terms of a film of, like, the fact that that's actually quite a thrill. Yeah, and can also be really dangerous. I think that's the other thing. It's like often when you do see it, it's, you know, it's presenting that, wow, they they helped you. And that's just a really straightforward good. And I think, again, what was really interesting us was kind of like what that, you know, why Holly helps him and what that help then does to her, you know. And, like, how sometimes when you sort of, you know, you get really into that thrill of helping someone that you can get stuck into something that, you know, perhaps isn't actually helping either of you. Well, well, I guess, you know, the way, the way you um, introduce Holly um, with, um, with the dumping scene, yeah. and, it, and, it's, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's a lovely, lovely little short kind of humiliation, as it were, for her. Yeah, leaving her, leaving her perplexed as to what you do next as far as getting a relationship. And I thought, I thought that was, I, I thought it was interesting the way, it sort of panned out as her, the young and the vulnerable as well as anything else, because there wasn't just the madness of what Nina was doing. There was also, 
here's a girl who's away from home for the first time. She's finding out who she is. She's finding out what physical relationships are like, falling in love, what falling in love is like. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's a really interesting scene to pick because it's one that um, you sort of often, you know, like if you look at the script in terms of, you know, a horror story or whatever, it's kind of like, it seems like a scene that you could do without. And it's a scene that we kind of, we spent, you know, a, a lot of time, you know, writing it, a lot of time working on it. And also re- we, 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 we spent a lot of time casting it, actually. And we're really, really... Um, excited to work with um, the guy in the scene, Javan Hurst, who I think gives a really fantastic performance. And it's such a kind of small scene, mm. and, but it's such a such a kind of like important moment in letting the audience into Holly, and kind of like by having her with someone who completely has misunderstood her, and he's just sat there, kind of like whiffling away in his own kind of like little bubble of like, yeah, you helped me, and I'm really dark, and I've got all these problems, and you know, and she, you then have this lovely moment when you're with her and you sort of have the, when she realizes oh, you don't know me at all. And it just seemed like a really nice way of kind of drawing you into this girl and seeing her at this, like you say, exactly at this point where she's away from home for the first time and her personality is very mutable and she is trying to find out who she is. And that makes her, you know, very open to things and also very vulnerable to things, but not vulnerable in a way that's, um, pure weakness you know it's a, it's that sort of interesting thing of her vulnerability is also her biggest strength but it was but also as well i felt that it, it that 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 little scene like you say could have easily been discounted mm. but actually it helps with us understanding her reaction when nina first happens yeah because because in a little in a in a in a in, in a smaller way you could argue that what holly's doing is going well i'm not going to get put off by this i'm dark i am yeah yeah i, I think with her that's you know, because it's kind of, um, there's the person that Holly thinks she wants to be, and then there's the person that at the moment she kind of is. And, you know, that growing process of going from the person that you're kind of, you know, like trying to leave the vestiges of childhood behind is very much what she's going through. And, yeah, actually, like a lot of the film is talking about what's going to happen if you actually push through with, you know, because she, see, she is seeking darkness and she is seeking uh, weirdness and, and wanting to, you know, experience something really heavy. And uh, she doesn't have that much knowledge of, of that sort of thing, really, mm. at the start of the film. And so, yeah, that's kind of where the journey of it goes in terms of realisation of what that actually does to you as a person. Mm. When you when you committed to the idea of, of this, this, this sort of horrible reincarnation of, of Nina... Um, as part of the, the sort of th- as part of the three of them in the re- like a, as if it's like a three headed relationship. What what were the main challenge? What were the main story challenge challenges for you when you're at the scripting stage then to try and get that right? And and I'll just just for the benefit of the audience, we were talking before we started about a film I'd watched at Fright Fest this year called um, called Curtain, which again, if you just give it the basic sort of pitch for it, you would go, well, that's a, that, that's a bit silly, but the film works because it, it plays. It plays with its, it plays it serious the way it delivers on its idea and takes you to its logical conclusion. But I mean, what challenges that present you in terms of like coming up with the rules for Nina, for example, in your storytelling, as well as trying to decipher Rob's grief, trying to decipher Holly, trying to find herself at the same time. Um, yeah, I suppose uh, in terms of the, the rules for Nina, they were quite um, simple in a way because you're basically going to. Well, actually, in terms of Nina, we were trying to write someone who has got a different experience of death, and is trying to explain that. And we were really, we were really attracted to doing that, to looking at a, a situation that everyone goes through, and trying to explain it in a different way that isn't just going, "Well, she's a ghost," or "Well, she's a zombie," um, and trying to be like, "Well, actually, if you were in that situation and you were coming back." What would you be think? You know, what would you be feeling rather than because so often with ghosts, they're there to help the person that's still around, mm. um, and if they're zombies, they're there to eat the person that's still. Around. <laughs> and with Nina, she's kind of coming up to the you know realization of um, she doesn't really have the feelings that we all do when we're alive. She doesn't have the same needs or wants, and. Yeah, what that does to her as a person. Of, um, yeah, and she also, it was very clear that she was going to be a character that sat 
outside of time. And we wanted her perspective to really reflect that. And so, you know, it's like, you know, we never kind of, um, I mean, you know, again, it was also, we never kind of particularly explain these rules in the film because we didn't want to, that didn't seem important, but in terms of, yeah, sort of building it and writing it, it, it always felt to us like for Nina, the events of the, every time she appears, the events almost kind of like go on one after the other. And she's, she has, she doesn't have kind of like the bits in between or, you know, like time is a very different concept for her and she has this very different view on what's happening. And that kind of distances her from what's happening. And also, again, just sort of, you know, she has this perspective from outside of life. And so, you know, she sat there and Rob and Holly are all kind of like, you know, how are we going to deal with this? And how are we going to get over this? And this matters and this is important and all the rest of it. And Nina's like, oh, wait a minute, none of this is anything to do with me. I'm, yeah, I, this is, this is all your concerns. And, and trust me, one day you will get to see it from my point of view. And, then you'll be like, oh, yeah, I didn't need to stress so much about that shit, did I? Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to die, yeah. Um, these things don't matter so much. Um, and when, when, when you were looking at it on the page and you were heading towards production, um, given that, obviously, films are based on a finite amount of money and resource, not infinite, what, what, what were the kind of biggest challenges that you foresaw? And sort of, do you want to tell us any kind of creative solutions you come up with to get, get what you wanted on screen? So we wrote we wrote something that we thought we could make ourselves without needing to go to anyone else for asking for funding. Um, right. So basically, we'd spent ages. We've been doing a lot of uh, TV work and a lot of developing scripts that were getting really, uh, put into the three act structure and following all of the rules and doing stuff that you know you're kind of like well this is supposed to happen here because that's what's supposed to happen hmm. rather than this is happening here because it would yeah um, and, and it's very easy to convince yourself that you know that the three-act structure is a sort of divine magical way of you know it's like that it is actually good writing like automatically it's like how do you tell it's good writing well the the structure's all in the right place so the down point comes there so therefore that is good writing in the way that, you know, a good chair has, you know, it's got a leg there so it doesn't fall over. And you then kind of, you know, you, you know, we, you sort of watch a lot of films and you sort of find yourself knowing exactly what's going to happen at every point and getting a bit kind of bored with that. And then you kind of like, you know, we were writing ideas and we were finding that the things that were initially drawing us to the idea, they're kind of like the, the wilder thing, the kind of the exciting thing, we sort of have that and get excited and then do lots of good writing to it and come away with a script that somehow, you know, the down point was in the right place and the, the you know, the, the inciting incident was in the right place. And, you know, the, the character learned something at the midpoint and, you know, it's surely it's all good, but somehow the excitement had gone and the interesting thing had, had sort of, there wasn't really space for the interesting thing in that structure. Mm. And it, it, it got a bit sort of frustrating for us. And we also, you know, it's like, you know, these scripts weren't getting produced and we could see why, you know, cause you'd read it back and you'd be, you know, you'd be sort of pissed off and you'd go, Oh, but it was brilliant. You read it back and you're like, well, actually no, because the brilliant thing that we pitched that people like, got excited by and then wanted to read, there's no room for it in this script. So it's not there. And so we were like, well, maybe we should, you know, just write something that has all the, the that has the thing that excites us about it and lets that, dictate the structure that the story has so that the story really represents the inspiration and contains all the things that, you know, we then pitch to people. And then if we make that and see if that actually kind of, you know, works. Um, so that was very, that was sort of our intention was to kind of like try and write something that was small, that was of a scale that we could do that with so that we didn't need to kind of, you know, uh, ask for, for millions of pounds. Yeah. To, to avoid the begging bowl. And so, yeah, we, we basically, we'd show, we were showing the script initially to people to say, well, this is what we're doing next. Um, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. We weren't act, so we showed it to our producer, uh, Cassandra Sixgard, who we'd been, you know, developing a romantic comedy with, and she was expecting the next draft of this rom-com. And uh, instead we were like, sorry, we've written this and we're not going to do the next draft of the rom-com because we're going to go and make this. <laughs> we sort of expected our relationship to end at that point. <laughs> that she was just going to be like, well, I can't do anything with this and you're going to ruin my chances of ever making this nice sweet rom-com that we've been writing. 
And instead, she loved it, and she loved the writing, and she loved the voice. You know, the thing that was really clear in it was the fact that, yeah, we had, by ignoring the usual thing of, well, you must have this here or that there, we'd really, you know, managed to nail the thing that we can bring to a film. And um, so, you know, the intention was always be, to be doing it small, but we always knew that um, in terms of stuff to make stuff work on screen like the whole thing with nina especially is um like really trying to plan the appearances when she arrives but also trying to be really sparing with the amount of time you see her so that you're not getting into that so often when you watch a film you're kind of going oh hold on but that doesn't work or you know mm, i i can see the join there mm -hmm. and um it actually really helped with this film where you're kind of going, well, so much of this is about their emotions and their reactions and you want to be on a close-up with them. You want to be feeling what they're feeling rather than be looking at, you know, oh, look at that thing. And we, I mean, it's funny that we've, you know, made a film that it, it kind of is a horror in a way. Um, we both don't like gore and can't watch it. So we've been going to all these horror film festivals and having to close our eyes. <laughs> And, and you know, <laughs> not be watching half of the films that we've been seeing because you're like, I don't like seeing this. And uh, yeah, it's been interesting making a film where you're kind of like, yeah, I don't like seeing that. And um, but I mean, the, the again, the interesting thing is like, depending on the viewer, like some people come out of it and they're like, wow, that I mean, you know, that's really gory. Like that's really you know, and some people are like, I mean, Oof, that's pretty damn explicit. Some of that is really woof, hot. And in both cases, I'm kind of like, well, it 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 really isn't, you know, it it really isn't. And what's happened there is you've seen some things, and your imagination has filled in the blanks. So anytime someone, like particularly with the gore, anytime someone comes out and goes, "That's really gory," I go, "No, no, you've got a really sick imagination. You've you you've coloured in this really messy wound that we didn't have the budget for, and wouldn't have wanted to show, to, and wouldn't have been able to film anyway because we'd have both been sick in the corner." It's like that's you. You've brought that to the film, which I think is you know is really great because I you know it's I love what an audience does bring to a film. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, famously, there's no gore in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yet lots yeah. of people swear blind. It's the most gruesome film they've ever seen. Um, but but the, the, that aside, though, there's still, the, there is an element of, like I say, I, I use the word icky, which makes it sound cutesy, but it's not. It's it's a lot more earthy than that. I think it you, you kind of veer into um, sort of body horror sort of territory, you know, because obviously you've got people having sex, you've got entwined with this sort of this back from the dead person and you're not shying away from that you know and you and, and admittedly you, you you're right a lot of it is sort of blood blood staining a white sheet and the clever editing of the way the rest of it what we see as it were i guess um but it does it does feel it does it doesn't feel like um it doesn't feel exploitative i think that's the, the what i'm trying to get to though is it, it it all feels in keeping with the tone of the film you know it it's shocking when it has to be shocking but it's not like you're trying to stick my head down the toilet till i'm sick yeah you know yeah. what i mean it's it's it, yeah that was very much our our intention and our plan I mean, very much like you know when we were you know working with the cast you know it's like it was that was always so sort of trying to make it really clear to everybody it's like that's you know, these scenes are not written so that, you know, we can have X amount of nudity or X amount of blood and guts on the screen. It was like, the intention behind this scene is to express this. We just have to do everything we can to make that work. And, you know, luckily everyone totally got that and, and got on board with us, you know. Yeah, it's almost that, that incidental side yeah. of it where you're kind of, you know, they're in a situation where naturally there's, there is blood and they are going to be naked and... The whole point of it is that you're going, well, the drama of the scene is the thing that should drive it. And it should be about your reactions to stuff. And it should, you know, the shots that we're putting into the film should all be about the story and what's happening. And so often, you know, like the exploitation is a really useful word for it, where you're kind of going, well, the only reason this is here is because you wanted to see some boobs. Or the only reason this is here is because you wanted to see some gore. And the whole point of this film is going, well, that's just about a feeling and an emotion. And... You know, hopefully in every single scene there there is a drama going on. There is this, you know, there is stuff going on between all of them. And so we wanted them to be as 
natural and as brave as possible in the way that they were going to perform it but we were never going to shoot it so that we're going okay now's the shot where we you know we focus on your boobs yeah i mean that's that also that's kind of about the drama that sort of was also really in sort of you know how the the sex scenes kind of came about and one of the things that we were interested in doing with that was was having scenes where the you know the you know the physicality of what's happening is what's telling the story. And it's like, it's the, the physical interaction of them having sex that is actually like asking the dramatic question, answering that and giving us the next part of the question. And, you know, so it's like, sometimes that's a, a verbal conversation and sometimes that's a physical conversation. And again, like, a, you know, so I said earlier with the kind of like the, the way you physically miss someone, we're really keen to kind of have scenes where it, it was the physicality of the three characters that was actually moving the story onwards. And I think a lot of the time um, with sex and with gore, those things are, are not actually part of the storytelling. They're kind of like an end in themselves, which is why often kind of like you can cut out the sex scene and you don't miss anything because it's not, you know, all it's told you is they had sex and you probably can work that out from the shot before and the shot after. You don't actually need to see it most times, but sometimes it, it's nice because people are lovely when they're naked. Um, but, that's all it is. And we were really keen to kind of like try and, you know, use those moments as sort of, you know, integral to telling the story and moving it forward. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, my memory, obviously, my memory of the film won't be as specific, as, as precise as yours, but when I think about it in, in, that, in those terms, it's, it's, you, you kind of go big and give us, give us the whole thing early doors. And then you're, like you say, you're you're more sparing. It's about the shapes. It's it's still showing the same thing often, but because we've already had the kind of big da da look. There's Nina. <laughs> yeah. There she, there she is, bloody hands around, and Holly's part of that, and they're all naked. So once we've seen that, we don't need to keep seeing that as a kind of re- rep- a repetitive thing all the time. Because that, I guess that wouldn't even be interesting for you guys, would it? As filmmakers, never mind. Um, just it being just cheap exploitation, it would have been boring for you, wouldn't it, to shoot the same scene over and over? Yeah. Um, so I think that was that's the kind of a, a clever a clever thing that happens is that and and if, if like you say you've had feedback which said, oh man, you grossed me out there. It's like, well, no, you've, you've your mind's eyes playing tricks on you. Yeah. That, sorry. That said, um, when you when you're casting a film like this, obviously you've got three people who are going to have to be intimate, no matter how much you show of it. There's there's a level of intimacy there for them as actors in proximity with one another, just, you know, simple physics. How, how do you go about casting that? And is that, is that part, is that part of the, a conversation up front or is that part of the conversation once you've got them interested? No, it was totally the conversation up front. We gave everyone who auditioned um, and everyone who uh, wanted to audition or thought about auditioning, we gave them the, the full script because like, and often in an audition, you just sort of have, you know, a scene, a couple of sides Hmm. And sort of have to, you know, build something out of that. And sometimes that can be quite useful because you kind of get an actor's instinctive response to one instance. And that, you know, at times can be quite valuable. But with this, it felt very important that not only did we kind of let everyone in on kind of like, okay, so, you know, most of this film takes place across a series of scenes with the three of you in bed together. Um, but also it felt by giving them the full script, they were then able to get the full context of that and go, you know, so you're not kind of going, well, here's this one scene where you're talking, oh, by the way, you're going to be naked throughout most of the film. So anyway, um, it was kind of like, <laughs> here's, the, you know, like, here's the full thing, here's why, here's, you know, the full story and the full everything. So that then the people who were coming in and auditioning were those who responded to the story um, and, yeah, you know, were, were up for the creative challenge. And, I mean, you know, in, in all of it, actually, the kind of, like, there is the kind of the physical challenge of, you know, being naked with each other and indeed with, you know, it's like, you know, you always forget that it's like, you know, it's a film set. So it's like, you know, there's X number of other people just standing around holding bits of equipment, um, which, if anything, is more daunting than, you know, being naked with a person in a bed. Mm. Um, but um, the actual, for all three of them, the real challenge and the real thing that daunted everybody was the emotional side of the story and where the characters went and finding the truth in that and, particularly with Fiona, I think, kind of going to that place of being a dead person um, and, you know, trying to find a way of putting her mind there and reporting back was, you know, that was far, far more daunting than 
kind of, you know, being naked every day, that was just sort of, you know, you know, that, that's just a part of the course, you know, it's, it's not such a big deal. And out, and out of interest, did, did you get people who, once they saw what was involved, they went, not for me, thank you? Um, yeah, occasionally. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did have, you know, uh, a fair few people that, you know, weren't up for it. And I think we had a couple of auditions with people who would come in and you could see in them, you know, in their mind's eye that they weren't really up for it. And, yeah. and, you know, they'd be like, yeah, probably not, actually. And that was all fine and dandy because, you know, we knew we needed people that were going to be brave enough to be you know, willing to, to go there with us when we're shooting it. And mm. you know, if, if in an audition or indeed not even, you know, whether or if you're wavering about an audition where obviously all we're doing is, you know, reading from a piece of paper and everybody's remaining clothed. If you're, if you're having trouble with the idea at this point, then, you know, yeah. we'd rather have <laughs> three weeks down the line. This is going to be a really hard day, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's all to the good, you know, yeah. it's actually, so much of the time with filmmaking, you know, people always say like the the next best thing after a yes is a no, um, yeah. because you know if you get a maybe, then actually you're going to spend your whole life like sort of chasing after that maybe, and eventually that might become a no, and it would be so much easier if it was just a no straight up front, because then you're moving on to something that can actually definitely happen. Yeah, it was more agents actually, to be fair, and understandably, it was more agents who be kind of like yeah i don't care how poetic and beautiful and how much you care about the character uh it's a micro budget british horror movie you're not getting naked for that i'm your agent i'm saying that foot down it's a no um so yeah i've had uh, a couple of people that i sort of bumped into being like yeah i wasn't allowed to, to i wanted to i wasn't allowed so yeah yeah well, I guess, yeah, yeah i can imagine that would be that would be the hurdle wouldn't it because it's the if, if you turn up in your Lars von trier then people aren't going to question your motives, are they not? But when it's a, a low budget, they don't have that field of vision to work in, do they not? Yeah, no, yeah. Quite, I'm quite right too. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not a criticism, it's uh, yeah. certainly. Um, now, I'm in a unique position here that I'm not usually in when I'm talking to filmmakers. Um, because of a mutual friend of ours and um, a twice guest on the podcast, Bruce Webb, I, I, went to, um, I went to a test screening for Nina Forever. Before, obviously, before, long before uh, South by Southwest. Yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, you make me look like I've got Emperor's New Clothes if you want, but it definitely felt like a different film than the one I watched. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, we did, what, four or five of those in the end, so I'm not quite sure which, but I think you, I think. I went to the one at the uh, Private Members Club off um, Old Compton Street. Yeah, yeah. in Soho House, yeah, they, they were um, doing us a deal for that room, which was really useful because, yeah. yeah, everywhere else, you know, it would have been really expensive. But Well, the main, the main thing I remember when I watched it, which I didn't feel like when I watched it this time, um, I remember thinking it was, it was arguably too humorous in terms of, you know, it didn't know whether it was one thing or another, whereas I felt like the version I watched... It may be just my the mood I was in and the mood if it's not changed that much. But certainly the impression I got watching it this time was that the everything was so much more balanced um, about yeah. the tone of the movie and and the pace of it. So I mean, for, for you as the filmmakers who went through that process, because obviously that's that must be quite a frightening thing when people are sort of you know the, the point is people have got to be pointed, haven't they, for you to get, make use of it. But equally, their only opinions. Well, the, the test screenings for us is though, actually the most useful bit with all okay. of is, and we really like doing it, is, yeah, we love is it. that thing of you sit in a room with a whole bunch of people, you know, some of whom, you know, most of whom you don't, mm. and suddenly you're watching the film like you're watching the film for the first time again, in a way that when, in the edit suite, we actually had, before we did the first test screening. Which I think is the one that you went to, I think. Yeah, okay. yeah, we think it might well be that one. Um, we'd done this screening, uh, we, we'd, we'd watched it together, us and Cassandra, the, the producer, and, um, we were like, yep, yeah, cool, we're there. You know, it feels like we're totally, you know, like it's doing everything we want it to, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're ready to go, and then showed it to an audience the next day, and I was surprised when the film ended. <laughs> And it was like, oh, I was expecting that to carry on. And you're like, well, of course it's not going to carry on, mate. You've been editing it for the last year. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it was like a really useful thing for just for that thing where you're kind of like, okay, it's not necessarily like well, a lot of the shorts that we've done are all comedies. And in terms of that, you know, you're just basically being like, well, did they laugh? Did they not laugh? 
Um, you know, and if they didn't laugh, well, probably either lose the joke or you need to sort the timing out because it isn't working. Mm. Whereas with this, it was kind of um, the really interesting bit was so much about the feeling and the mood, and you could really feel when other people were really engaged and were really on the edge of their seat and when they weren't. Yeah. And, and one of the big things that we found was actually that we'd just, um, we'd over-explained everything and uh, we were being really cautious of making sure that everybody knew exactly what was happening at every point in the film. And actually the thing that you want is, you know, the mystery and you want that sense of, okay, this is weird. And the more we screened it and the more times we did those test screenings, the weirder the film became. And um, I think that's probably where, like, you know, the humour starts under, like, you know, getting a little bit underneath rather than being first and foremost because we're not doing the explanations, um, which I think, you know, if you think about comedy so often, they do do the, uh, uh, you know, like, okay, there we go. That's the bit with the joke. And now we're going to have the bit which is, you know, it's going to be vaguely humorous, but it's going to be two people basically explaining what just happened. <laughs> and then we're going to do the next thing. And uh, we were trying to take out those explanations, basically. Um, yeah, so maybe, maybe, it was, maybe it was the the, the, the sense, because I did feel like Nina was a lot more understated. And therefore, I'm because obviously, from a visual point of view, she's startling enough as it is, yeah. without having to explain herself. And I, and, I, and I must admit, you know, and it's the, in, in all kind of horror or or anything that plays with supernatural and is dramatic, just in a in a psychological or dark dramatic sense, is and this is why I was talking about the rules before, is there is that kind of high wire act, isn't there? Of what do what does people what do people need to know to to, to not lose trust in me as a filmmaker and how much do we hold back from them because that's what's going to keep drawing them in <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and i think it's also it, it's the how they know things as well you know it's like like with the rules you know that govern when nina appears and when she doesn't like we're really clear as to what they are and in what circumstances she would arise and in what circumstances she wouldn't um, but we didn't want the characters to be talking about that. Yeah, and there's there's never any kind of like you know explanation of that. Mm. But like when you talk to audiences afterwards, um, you know, it's I think there's 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 normally like two people in a hundred who don't quite follow that and need it and want it explained to them, and everyone else absolutely has it down. You know, absolutely they know exactly what what's going on there. And it's never mentioned in the film, but it's just like it's it's intrinsic to to the fabric of the thing. So it's you know it's like, and I think you know yeah, if you explain that, then it becomes boring. It's like, well, yeah, I knew that. You don't need a scene telling me this. Yeah, and definitely between that first test screening and you know the final film, mm. uh, we definitely took out some gags as well. Yeah, we did. Where often you'd be. You know, it was it's a funny line, and um, we always enjoyed all of them, but then you kind of get to this point where you're like, well, actually, I'm not sure we need to be making the audience laugh here. It's probably going to be better to um, to be, just be carrying on mm. um, with the story. Like, uh, yeah, there's definitely one gag in the um, cemetery with Rob yeah. um, and the mum, which um, always got a laugh, uh, and we did take out, and that's partly because we're kind of repeating the same sort of joke with Holly. A bit later, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then there's and, a whole section with Nina as well, which yeah, taken out. And actually, also the same with um, before, before. Yeah, I think before we got there, but in terms of taking out good stuff, which is sort of the harder part of the edit, um, we were really lucky that um, we had an edit mentor on the film because um, we sort of edited, you know, all our own work. But you know, editing your own feature film is, um, yeah, you know, it was something we'd never done before, um, and. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really good to kind of get to have, you know, sort of a conversation with, um, John Harris, uh, who edited, uh, all sorts of kick ass and, and 127 hours. Yeah. And he's amazing. Um, and what was so good about that was that he, he didn't do the kind of like the notes thing of kind of like, hmm, the timing of this is wrong and the, the, the sounds are here. He just kind of went through and sort of gave us a load of kind of like ideas and thoughts and things to go away and play with and things to try. But one of his kind of big points was actually about the, the sadness in the film in the same way with the jokes was kind of like, there are certain like with the parents, um, played by, uh, um, David Troughton and, um, Liz Elvin. Liz Elvin. Yeah. Um, and they're both amazing, like amazing at being heartbreaking. And 
like the first time we meet them, he was like, you know, look, this scene starts and, you know, like this happens and it, it poof, just blows you away. And then like a minute later, you have that moment. And that's like individually, that's just as powerful. And then you've got that moment. And I'm like, by that point, I'm numb. I can't feel any sadder for them. <laughs> and I'm actually a bit bored. Like, even though they're giving like these amazing performances, I've had my emotion. I'm, I'm done here. And so, you know, and like, obviously at that point, you're like, but no, they're so good. And I was like, but just try it. And so we took out, we've like chose our, our favorite sad moment for that scene and took out the rest. And then watched it back and we're like, oh, God, he's absolutely right. That scene now kills you. Like, that scene does everything it needs to, you know, and you just go, bang. Yeah, fine. I, I, I know what they're feeling. It's really powerful. It's beautiful. I don't need anything else. And it was, again, yeah, it's Chris said the same with some of the jokes, you know. So. Yeah, in the end, you can only have one punchline. That's why it's called a punchline. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if you're kind of trying to top that again, then you start being like, well, yeah, it's the law of diminishing returns. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of the uh, well, there's two. There's two sort of. They're not major scenes in it, but they're two that I really enjoyed. Um, one was the um, was the bus, the empty bus scene. Yeah, I thought that was just a really clever way. Put almost like cha you channel the drama through a bloke on his own on the bus. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah. did that idea come from? Um, real life, I think. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, but we were doing. Because um, the film's quite well, the reason I ask that is because the film's obviously quite contained. Yeah, between the sort of parents, the, the the grieving parents' home and the grieving boyfriend's home, with a few sort of other sort of incidental scenes, but they're largely the kind of locations we we get to know most. Um, and then suddenly we're out on the road with uh, with Robin Holly, and and they've they're having a massive argument. A bus pulls off. It's complete. Just this doesn't necessarily this doesn't isn't a spoiler as such, is it? I don't think. Um, it's, it's just a, you can talk about the scene in isolation without ruining the film, I think. Um, they, <laughs> she gets on a bus and there's one bloke on his own, nobody else on the bus, and she says, can I sit there? So she lets him sit by the window, and then Rob gets on, and then they're having an argument with this poor bloke. It was That was just a really nice a nice way of what could have been, you know, arguably just a very mundane argument scene. traditional argument scene. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, all the way through, I mean, again, going back to that kind of, um, that thing about the embarrassment we were talking about and mm. the kind of, that sense of humiliation, there are lots of little moments, um, when, and I suppose it sort of comes back to the kind of like, we always thought of it less as a horror film and more as this sort of magic realist thing. Mm. And in order to make that work, it's always about the kind of like magical impossible thing happening in a really, really mundane environment, you know, and it's like, like one of the, so influences on that was um, the artist Danny Spencer, who did um, a series of uh, sort of paintings of scenes from the Bible, but he set them all in his village of Cookham. And he'd have things like like Jesus coming out of the cemetery in Cookham, and there'd be some like other people who were buried in Cookham Cemetery also coming out of their graves and being like, oh, hello, mate. And it, it sort of, so there's lots of moments in the film where you kind of, we kind of wanted to juxtapose like what Rob and Holly are going through with this impossible thing with the kind of like the ordinary stuff. So there's that, that scene in the laundrette with Rob when he's sort of, you know, like trying to clean up the bloody sheets for the first time and he takes them to the laundrette mm. and he's sat there and he's like looking at this bag in front of him full of this sort of blood splattered bedding. And then sort of just across the way there's like these two like kids and their mum doing their sort of, you know, weekend, you know, laundry. And it was that kind of juxtaposition. And I think that that scene on the bus was like, came out of another expression of that and of kind of going, well, we want it when we were writing it. We used to really like the idea of suddenly switching perspective and seeing this kind of arguing couple from this complete stranger's point of view and a stranger who, because of the situation he's in, which is something that, you know, like we've all been in public when people have been arguing around us and you all have that kind of that, you know, and you know, like he has that moment of like, oh God, is this bloke going to kick off? Am I going to have to get involved? And that dread of like, ah, oh, how do you punch someone again? Is it thumb out or thumb in? That's that's always what goes through my head. It's kind of like, now hang on, one, you know, it's thumb in, you break your thumb. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm not a fighter, as you can probably tell. Um, <laughs> and um, it was like, but you kind of go, that's a character that like the audience automatically relate to, and you, you're instinctively, you know, you, you know, you don't need any backstory on him, and you're like, yeah, I've got that. And so it was a really nice. It just seemed like a really nice way of again, kind of pulling the perspective and having. You know, they're having this conversation about, again, this sort of, you know, 
almost impossible magical thing, although he doesn't overhear anything about Nina coming back from the dead, but it's still, you know, and um, yeah, it just seemed, just seemed kind of, again, in keeping with that kind of sense of humiliation that you get with, with grief. Um, was, the, the other scene, the, 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 that, was, that was one of two. The other, two, the other one is, is um, the, dinner, the dinner scene with the parents towards the end. I where mean. where you kind of you kind of flip flop on us a bit and and it really takes your breath away. Um, I feel and certainly for me anyway. Watching it, it was uh, a really powerful scene because yeah, we we've been we've been enjoying the film as it were, for want of a better expression, from from Rob's point of view, and suddenly you give us the grieving parents' point of view, like up front. We obviously we've seen them as Rob's seen them, but then suddenly you go. Here we go. Here's their point of view, and it's not necessarily what we might have expected. The, the inherent unfairness of life mm. um, is, is totally striking, um, and also just that thing of um, it's the helping people as well, where you kind of you know in that situation, everybody feels like they're helping each other, and uh, Rob's just trying to tell them that. He, you know, that it might not be working, that he might not be doing well for them, but he's just fucking up his words. That's what he does. He's not very, he's not very eloquent. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was an interesting character to write in a way of just yeah. trying to write somebody who tries to make, uh, you know, long speeches, but pretty much fails. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he's kind of steps, steps in it a little bit in a way that he doesn't really mean to. Um, and, um, just that in you know the indignant sense of uh they're not a weight around his shoulders they they do feel like they have been helping him um yeah it's a really important thing to them that's that's you know that's definitely what they're trying to do at the very beginning and as much as they're sharing their own weirdness with him they are also trying to encourage him to get back out and uh you know uh, have a life um yeah, so that is all, all, all there uh, from from the start. I think. Isn't it? No, 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 it is. I just, I just like, I just like the the for so much of the film. Quite rightly, we have everything more or less from Rob's point of view. Yeah, and you know the opinions, as it were, are are, are reserved. You know, and, and and when they when they blow, as it were, yeah. it's in keeping with what they've been repressing, <laughs> as it were. You know, when he's when he's come round again for Sunday dinner. They've bit the lip, obviously, and carried on like this is normal, because obviously this is what he needs to grieve. Yeah. Whereas obviously he tells Holly, "I have to go because they need me," and it's a lovely. It's just a, and again, it's that thing. You, again, it, it, you, you're you may well have got shown at one of Europe's biggest horror film festivals, but actually, there's there's sort of a depth of touch with the film. With, with sort of real emotion. Um, and I think, I'm trying to with you, that was a pattern, I mean, it, it, admittedly, Fright Fest now bills itself as the kind of dark heart of cinema rather than the home of horror, which I think it used to be a strap line. Yeah. And there was a few films this year. I mean, there was yours and there was, um, They Look Like People. It was one that was about two people in an apartment in New York and one of them is some sort of bipolar schizophrenic and the best friend goes with the delusion. And it's wonderful. But yeah. it's, it's not what you'd call a horror film in inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, uh, oh, what was the one about the end of the world? Oh, uh, Last Hours? Last Hours, yeah. Last Hours, which, um, yeah, it's like, uh, a film about, yeah, if the world was going to end, uh, what would you do in those last hours? And it was actually, yeah, you kind of, there's one moment where you're like, oh gosh, this is going to be a horror film. And then the rest of it, you're going, oh no, 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 this is a, this is a drama. Yeah. And a really, uh, it's, that's a, yeah, actually a really kind of surprising, intelligent, thoughtful, beautiful film that, yeah, was really, again, was a real treat. Yeah. And I think, and I think this is something about, um, it says something about, I guess about horror as a genre, which it's kind of undersold to the kind of mainstream because yeah. they, they sort of go, well, it's, it's sore and it's monsters. Yeah. Um, but then sometimes, you know, its own, its own core audience are a bit conservative and they go, oh, that's not a horror film. So, you know, there's, there's a fine actor. I mean, in terms of just the practical, the practicality of trying to sell your movie, I mean, I bet sales agents must have loved the fact that it didn't sit neatly in the genre. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, they, they totally lapped that up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, to be honest, we had some really fascinating conversations where uh, we had one which was, so how would you sell your movie? And 
we did, you know, a spiel that probably lasted two, three minutes. And they went, no, 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 we just mean horror, romance, or comedy. <laughs> you, poured, oh, okay. you poured your soul on the table, and he just wanted yes. just to draw, yes. draw him a triangle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not even, not even that. It wasn't that we weren't allowed a triangle, it's just one. Yeah. Pick, pick one. one side of the triangle, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one flat line. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, they definitely want to put you in a box, and I suppose some of that just comes down to the way that the boxes get shown in the end, where you're kind of, you know, like uh, on iTunes there you are, horror, you know, that's one of the genres. And you kind of, you know, it starts being like, what genres are you allowed to pick? They're the ones that Netflix and iTunes have uh, deemed to be horror, to be uh, genres. Otherwise, yeah, you're kind of, um, you're not really there, as much yeah. as Netflix talk about. Yeah, it's yeah. in it, I mean, you were talking about this the other day, actually, weren't you? The idea of kind of like, and this is a thought that the pair of us have been batting around and have done no research into, so, you know... This could be bullshit, but it, it, it was quite interesting. The thought that genre as we know it kind of actually grows up in parallel with the rise of domestic VHS video and video stores. And so genre starts ha- becoming so important to films kind of primarily because at the films start being put on shelves with a label on them. And like now it's kind of like it's gone to, you know, like right to the extreme of that where kind of like the way that, you know, like films are, you know, like, yeah, you know, it's iTunes and you go, well, which category, which of these categories is it going to go in? It can't go in anywhere else. And just, yeah, just to be really interesting for someone with more time than we have to uh, see if there's any truth in that idea and kind of like, you know, like how, how dominating, you know, genre was kind of like before Blockbuster existed. I, th- I think that's a, that's a shout out for anyone wanting it to. Is, it is. I realise it's rhetorical rather than you getting me to give you the answer. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I must admit, you notice when you look at Netflix now that you can look in one section and the same film will appear in different sections. Yeah, for sure. Because right. you, you you could you could say yes, yours has got horror, it's got drama, it's maybe psychological. Yeah. Um, then you then you can get split at the infinity and go dark drama. <laughs> And I think I think that's that's been for me has been because um, t- you've got you've got that marketing term of elevated genre, haven't you? Yeah. Which I don't know was that ever was that ever a label ever applied to you with this film? No, no one's used that exactly. Because that seems to me to be the one that you apply to horror films for people that don't go and see horror that much. So you kind of go, look, this is. I know you used you think horror's the sun, but this one's the Guardian. So. Come and watch this. <laughs> yeah, you mean the Babadook, yeah? Yeah, the Babadook. I'll let the right one in. You know, they've, yeah, they've right. made me two great examples of, of where... And it's great because it means it invites more people in and they go, oh, I'll go and check out other genre pieces then. But yeah. ultimately, it is, it is a kind of card trick to get people to watch movies, which I suppose in the end isn't a bad thing. But like, like your experience, when you go to the sharp end, which is when you're talking to the guys whose job it is to sell a movie at the end of the day, they need that to be as simple as possible, not as complicated. So once a film starts to blur lines, great for the artist. And great for the, for the audience as well. Uh, great for the audience as well, yeah, sorry. But hard for the um, hard for the, um, for the people selling. I mean, Babadook is a, a, a great, obviously covers similar ground to yourself, where it's about, it's, a lot of that film is about grief. Yeah. I mean, it has more jump scares in a traditional horror sense, but yeah. it's certainly... It, it, in its denouement, is about it's not about horror. It's about what you do when somebody close to you has died, and you yeah. don't feel like you can go on. Which you know you could say the same at the end of Nina Forever. Absolutely, yeah. 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 But I think it also it kind of like it's hard. It's a hard sell in that way of kind of going. My way of selling this is to put it in one particular box, and I've got one important weekend in which I can grab your attention for thirty seconds. As you're, you know, and you can, you will buy it then or never. But I think we are actually, you know, entering a, a period where you kind of just need to change the model and change the way in which films are sold. And I think it is happening. And I think that, you know, I mean, and in some ways it's kind of like it's learning lessons from history. And in like once upon a time when films would just play in cinemas because there was no other way of seeing them, you know, a film would open in one cinema and it would play there and people would see it and they'd really like it and they'd go back and then it might, go to another couple and films would play for, for months at a time in a, a few places all around the place. And 
you know, that kind of idea of like, you know, a word of mouth success and of, you know, a film that, you know, like now sort of, you know, online, you know, films, you know, you can, that it can just be there for you. And I guess, you know, as we were saying, kind of like from March onwards, um, you know, Nina is, is out there if you want to go and watch it. And, you know, hopefully that sort of becomes much more of the, the thought process of how you're selling it. So it's less about kind of needing specifically to say it's exactly this and just letting it build up this head of steam of people watching it and going, oh, I love that. And then saying to their mate, you will love this because I know you. And that, you know, and it's sort of spreading that way of kind of like just people seeing it because they like the thing that it is rather than trying to make it appear to be something else in order to kid them that they might enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I guess you, you, you've, kind of, you've, you've jumped the, the first sort of, the first hurdle, which is you've got people ever since South by Southwest sort of championing your film. They've not, the people yeah. who are championing it and giving, your, giving you a voice outside of yourselves for the movie are not people that are worried it's one thing or another. But they'll, like you say, they'll be telling their, their friends and their connections or whatever. But then obviously once, once your work becomes available in a kind of Netflix or an iTunes scenario, then there's, there's the life of the movie as a connection to what everybody else has watched before and after they see Nina Forever, so to speak. So you can bring people in who've watched other films because somebody who's watched Nina Forever has watched the same film as somebody else, and it all gets very complicated. So I won't, I won't get too much into that. But, but there is that element, isn't there, that, that, that the, um, that the, the film, the film, the, what, what genre it is won't matter in the end, because somebody will watch a film in an online scenario, and the online bit will say, people who watch that also watch Nina Forever, and then suddenly someone's going to check it out, not because it's one genre or another, but because it's linked to something they already enjoyed. I actually let the right one in is a really good example, because yeah. ben, ben wanted to go and see the film, and the only thing I knew about it was seeing the poster, and I thought it was about vampires, and I thought, well, I don't really fancy that. And um, so I said, let's not, let's not see that, and we went and saw something rubbish instead. And then months later, having learned more about the film, we finally watched it, and uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it was that thing of... Um, the, the initial impression that the poster gave me was, oh, this is just a, this is just a horror film. You know, it's got it's got the scratchy poster, and it's like, oh, it's the silhouette of a little girl, and you know, uh, yeah, I'm just waiting for that to be, uh, you know, I don't know what exactly I was thinking it was going to be, but I thought it was going to be pretty shocky, and um, yeah, that definitely did put me off going and seeing it first off. But then when I heard more about it, you know, really interested, and now I'm like a, you know. Uh, evangelical for let the iron in, always telling people how good it is. Yeah, and I, you know, I hope that you know that Nina will have, and I, I know that already there are people who, you know, have sort of, uh, seen the first thing or you well, know, I'm Alice, slapping them. Uh, Sorry, yeah, that's somebody sending a text on uh, the joy of uh, <laughs> Apple computers, the way that they will give you every single notification possible from every single device. All on the one device, even when you don't want it to be on that one device. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> all right, so my ears are still ringing, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, the, like already there have been people who you know like have heard that Nina Forever is this kind of like really sexy horror movie, and they've been like, oh, I don't think I want to watch that. And then they, you know, they keep seeing other, you know, like other people posting about it, and they hear the other side of it, and like. They hear that, and then suddenly they're kind of like, well, they're drawn, and so they they do then go and see it because they've kind of like you know heard enough about it, and it amazes them. And they're like, you know, so many people are going like, I thought this was going to be like this terrible horror movie thing, and it's not that at all. And I mean, actually, that was another thing. Just like like you mentioned, the kind of like the occasional conservatism of kind of horror fans, and we were really scared about that because you know the film isn't playing by the genre, and we've been so delighted and so lucky, kind of like that the horror community so far we've not really come up against any conservatism in that at all and everyone has just kind of like really seen the film for what it is and even if they kind of you know generally kind of like adored it and thrown their arms around it and the few who haven't liked it have at least had the good grace to go well i can see what you're trying to do i wanted something that was a bit messier but you know like fair play to you you know it's kind of like they've been a really open-minded crowd to play to and I think the interesting thing is sort of, you know, I, I now feel like a kind of like a, a sort of a proselytizer for, for horror fans. And I kind of feel, you know, like the frustrating thing is all those people who are going, it's a horror movie. I don't think I'll like it. And you're like, that's not true. Break, open your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's remind people before we forget um, how they can watch this film. 
So uh, in select cinemas from February the 12th, um, uh, and most of those can be booked through ourscreen.com. Um, and then it's coming out on VOD on the 15th of February, and it will be on DVD and Blu-ray from the 22nd. Yeah, um, and there's uh, ninaforever.com is the website that we try to keep up to date with uh, most information like that. Um, there's obviously also, it's on Facebook, Nina Forever Film uh, on Facebook, um, and you can also follow us at Blaine Brothers. Um, and uh, yeah, those all those sources will keep you up to date with all the very latest screenings and availabilities of it. I will put that in the show notes. Thank cool. you. All right. Well, look, it's been a blast talking to you. I like one, mate. Yeah. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.